following podcast contains mature language and spoilers. Listener discretion is advised. So I just want to give a brief shout out to Aruna, who was introduced in a Batgirl annual as part of Planet DC. She's an Indian character. The downside to her, it, it, one thing that bugs me is you take somebody like Akrata, she looks cool, but she doesn't have a lot going on in terms of her backstory or her power set, where Aruna has a pretty cool backstory and power. She doesn't have a costume. She doesn't really have a strong visual, but she's like, she's a character who's really relevant because not only is she an international hero, an Indian hero, potentially an emerging superpower, but also because of Aruna's fluid identity gender identity and physical features and things like that that's something that's very much worth exploring in modern comics as uh, people becoming more educated and more interested in you know like say trans culture for instance and and trans identity i didn't have to put a lot of thought into what to do with Aruna. i knew i wanted to do something with her because i want to play around with any of the planned dc characters i love the international characters i've mentioned but because there was a you know doomsday clock came out and that was another thing that was weird for me is like if you go to wikipedia and you read about doomsday clock you read like the synopses and the the overall story. It sounds off. It just sounds painful and just way too in the weeds comic book stuff. Like even for me and, and whoever authored the Wikipedia entry, not flowing prose, I got to tell you. But I went ahead and I actually picked up the books and tossed through them and read through them a little bit. And I, I was I was slagging on them really bad on Twitter. And I'm surprised nobody came back at me because looking through it, it's, it, it reads much better on the page than it does in synopsis. Still not a book that I would want to read because I just I don't care about playing around in Alan Moore's you know Watchmen universe I, I have no interest in that and I'm, I'm tired of violent grimdark type of material I, I just think that we should be past it by now but of course once again you give, you're given the false hope because the, the story builds up with a sense of impending doom just like Watchmen had but instead of blowing things up they bring back a bunch of characters you know oh look it's the classic Justice Society of America that Jeff Johns wrote all those years ago who Huzzah! We've been here before. Now the video's gone, maybe a group like the JSA can come back and not just be ripped to pieces again uh, in, a, in a short span of time uh, for the shock value. But you can only have these guys, look, it's the return of these guys so many times before you're like, okay, great. The classic JSA's back. Super. Who's going to write them? Who's going to draw them? Are you going to do anything with them that I actually want to spend money on and read? It's tough not to get jaded about that stuff. And I'm sure that they, I mean, Doomsday Clock seemed to have some following, but it doesn't, it didn't seem to have the sort of impact that you would have on a comic series like that 10 to 20 years earlier but it didn't look terrible it was fine it, 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 it you know of course it's drawn by gary frank and it was a pretty book and it, you know it, it did some worthwhile stuff it was interesting to me for them to go back to the 80s and play around with a lot of that john ostrander stuff about the you know the threat of the superheroes and, and nuclear superheroes it reminded me a lot of the stuff ostrander was doing with firestorm and the suicide squad back in that day but uh one thing that is kind of fun is it seemed like john's really wanted to bring everything back and find a place for everything and one thing he did was he, he brought about an Indian superhero team called the Doomed, mostly made up of characters that were leftovers from, you know, the new Doom Patrol, but also a lot of Indian characters. And uh, whether or not it was actually in the book, because there were so many giant crowd scenes, I don't know how you could actually come up with a team in the midst of all that. But, you know, online, the, the wiki people found a way of, of putting a bunch, you know, they'd see a group of characters and they decided they were a team. So this team is supposed to be the Doomed. And Aruna, because she's an Indian character, I believe that she's the right 
like pronoun. I, she, she was female presenting in the, the annual, as I recall. And, and if you look at the entry in the encyclopedia, that's the image that we see. Mike Deodato Jr. visiting DC one last time. He hasn't done a lot of stuff for DC after his big splash on Wonder Woman. He went to Marvel and, and very much made his bones at Marvel. But anyway, Aruna was part of this group, The Doomed. And so when it came to Cisco's project, you know, Indian Super Team sounded like a good idea to me. So I just took what Jeff Johns had done and added a couple other people into the mix because I think some of them were more misguided and, and more of a reach than were necessary. But since Aruna was already in the team, it's like, great, there's already a place for Aruna. I don't have to figure out what to do with her. But I'm glad that she has something to do because I, I remember that annual was pretty solid and a cool character concept. So it's not that I lack for material. Just as a for instance, I, I've recorded like 10 plus hours with Jeffrey Brown alone. As much as I would like to just throw some of that stuff out as a DC special or a rolled spine, it's 10 fucking hours and that takes a long time to kind of go through and curate. And a lot of that material seems like it'd make the most sense on the DC Bloodlines podcast, the show that I abandoned in part because I just felt like I was embarrassing myself on that show. I had good intentions and I, I, I really feel like I came up short and uh, made some pretty big mistakes and it didn't help that a writer who produced some of the best stories in the bloodlines art was busted as a pedophile this is one of the great comic historians and you know a, a lot of our historical texts came from this guy and it's all been tainted by his predilections and so between not wanting to favorably cover stories by a guy with those inclinations and my own just embarrassing attempts at um, you know, vocalizing characters of races that aren't my own and just like being mortified by the results of that. I, I really didn't want to do any more DC Bloodlines. I feel like I just failed so spectacularly on that that I didn't really want to go back to it. But Jeffrey Brown reached out to me with material that really is well suited for that venue. But DC Bloodlines was also a pain in the ass to do. And I've got 10 hours of audio to go through to, to make some of that happen. It's just going to take some time and effort to do that. I was going into my vacation. I was really spent. I just didn't have the juice to work on that to do that, especially if I'm working on spawnometers, which are really call for a large investment. And so basically I, I had a week off from work and at least half that time was just trying to get over burnout from life in 2020. Terrific years of how this year might still turn out that haven't been resolved yet. Ask me again in early November and I, I might have a, a more sunnier outlook. I, I've got a podcast due this week, but I spent a lot of my time over the weekend working on a spawnometer to come because it was, it was another one that was very intensive. I was basically taking a lot of found audio and massaging that into something that would work narratively as biography for a couple of creators. I just basically ran out of time to do anything for this week of, of any kind of substance. There was another issue too though and it's an issue that's impacted podcasts for a few months now and basically it's that uh, one of those uh, Fire and Water podcasters, Siskoid, came out with a new show called Who's Editing? If there's two shows Fire and Water is known for it's the eponymous podcast which we've already discussed and the Who's Who podcast and it, it was so funny because I remember when uh, Rob and Shag were first starting to, to put together the Who's Who podcast and, and first announcing and stuff and they had this trepidation because they didn't feel like anybody was going to care about such a podcast and I knew as soon as he announced it that it was going to have a, res have a resounding impact because there's a ton of people like me who just are, are continuity nerds who crave those encyclopedic essays on these characters and the, these universes and you know I, I knew I was 100% down for anything related to who's who 
too. And I knew I wasn't alone in that. And I think it ended up being one of their more popular and more beloved shows. To a large degree, they don't even do Fire and Water podcasts anymore. But uh, Who's Who is coming up on the end of its run, much beloved. And uh, everybody's very anxious to see, you know, the resolution. But also, I think there's a sadness and there seems to be a hesitation to get to that end. Uh, obviously, episodes, uh, gaps are getting longer and longer because nobody really wants to see it end. That nobody wants Who's Who impact. So Atari Force, right? I know a bunch of people in my age range that just have like this passion for Atari Force. And the simple fact was I didn't stumble across these books as a kid. They were never at the flea markets. I guess it wasn't a big enough selling book. From reading the letter columns, it apparently sold respectably, but not huge numbers. And so they were just kind of happy with getting some kind of traction with any new property at DC in the early 80s, where they were just constantly struggling to find any audience at all. But I have a sort of history with Atari Force. I actually had an Atari 2600, I believe it was. Uh, I, I, actually, I go even further back than that. I had the uh, console that was passed down, and this was, by this point, it would have been in the late 80s, maybe even the early 90s, where it was the actual version of the Atari where the controllers were embedded into the actual console, and they were just dials, and so mostly you could just play things like Pong on it and stuff. It was pretty lame, obviously, but at least I had access to it and, and can speak of experiences with doing things like Breakout with that console. But we had the Atari 2600. It was, I think, the second gaming system we had, uh, because we had a ColecoVision before that. I basically remember just playing a lot of Donkey Kong and there was some game where you had a fighter plane and you were flying over a lot of areas and blowing some stuff up. And those are the only two games I remember ever having on the ColecoVision. We got an Atari 2600 and we had most of the, the games you'd expect to have on something like that. And we actually bought new games. And one of the cool things about buying Atari back then is sometimes they would become packaged with a mini comic. And these were way, way better than the ones you have in things like Master of the Universe because they weren't these tiny or superpowers where they weren't these tiny little thin stories. These would be like pretty much full length comic books. They were just the dimensions of an Atari cartridge, so it fit in the box. There were some pretty decent Atari stories, you know. That was not my introduction to Gil Kane, but it was a point where I finally started to appreciate him, because he was doing drawing all these aliens and stuff, and, and doing all these upshots into people's nostrils. But it was a free comic, and it was a fun little adventure. Probably either Jerry Conway or Roy Thomas wrote it, and you know, these are, these are solid scripters, and they had some good artists on those books. I had several of them. I managed to hold on to them for a number of years i think that they all got lost in the great storage unit auction of 1984 but i had some familiarity with the idea of an atari force but in the wild i just never would see these books and also i guess if i did stumble upon them in quarter bins which i, I really don't remember happening in the 80s and 90s there was no reason to buy it because atari was all but dead by the 90s uh, while i enjoyed my little mini comics and stuff I, there was there wasn't any compelling reason for me to pick up these books but i always knew people in my age group that were very fond of them but i, I just never got around to reading them because I didn't have a reason to. They weren't relevant to DC continuity and the books weren't readily available, so I just didn't. But we're in the internet age now and you can find things through somewhat illicit means and um, because of this project, I, I tried to do some research on Atari Force. It wasn't a conscious decision on my part, but I, I think just subconsciously I was aware that there are certain properties that are just heavily, heavily represented in Who's Who. Obviously, from listening to the Fire and Water Podcast Network's show, there's so many times where they're groaning over the appearance of a new god or an Omega Man and so you're just you don't even have to think about it you're aware that at some point you're going to have to address these properties and so I just kind of I, I, again it wasn't a conscious decision but I just want to get out in front of it I'm going to be dealing with a lot of Atari Force characters I should probably have a greater familiarity with it and so I've read I think at this point something like 17 issues of it I've finished Gary Con I keep calling him Gary uh, Jerry Conway's run on the book and it, it was entertaining Jose Luis Garcia Lopez praise be his name draws the majority of those issues but there are a lot of fill-ins and the such I think 
think Ross Andrew did some and uh, Ross Andrew I don't think ever has gotten his due just a, a really straight solid penciler like definitely I don't want to say John Romita level he's not quite there but he's a dude who gets the story done and gives you that little extra cream you know it, it, it's always going to be a little nicer than Journeyman it's not quite fan favorite level but always going to be nicer than the basic model so I really uh, appreciate that from Andrew they had some good inkers on the series as well I think um, was it Ricardo Villagran I think did some of the stuff and so it gave it a nice texture gave it kind of a European vibe and having credit these are some pretty solid characters and I guess we're going to be addressing these characters individually over the course of this thing so I, I don't want to go into too much detail but just overall Atari Force reminds me a lot of Dreadstar I was an early introduced at an early age to Jim Starlin's work and I it, it's been formative a lot of my political and religious views can be traced back to Jim Starlin and I got to tell him to him to his face about that uh, he was pretty sheepish about it but you know I the, I think it's wise to question institutions especially when you see the results of these institutions we've had a lot of uh, conflict in our modern times and trying to resolve the injustices can, that can come out of these systemic structures and I, I think Dreadstar did a really nice job in part because the whole thing is premised on a war involving a monarchy and a more typically structured government and then you have a government that's a theocracy showing the deficits of both of those models of government through the viewpoint of rebels that are fighting both of these parties you know it's drawn by Dr Jim Starlin and uh, you know I, I'm, a, I'm a heretic here I'm an apostate whatever you want to call me I'm sorry I hate to say it but I'm always going to have a much deeper love and appreciation for Jim Starlin's work than for Jose Luis Garcia Lopez's his uh, milieu is much smaller and he didn't have the benefit of drawing the style guide of DC Comics that was heavily influenced by Super Friends which is just a huge touchstone for Generation X and, and, and I'll be honest with you objectively Starlin is not nearly as versatile of an artist and he has blind spots that Jose Luis Garcia Lopez does not he's you know much stronger overall but in terms of how a story is told and whether or not that story is affecting to me makes me feel for the characters and their predicaments and the like I'm always going to gravitate more toward Jim Starlin and this is also to some degree true as a writer as well as I, I if I if I'm having a fight between Jerry Conway and Jim Starlin I think that Jerry Conway has probably written more entertaining comics like in terms of just a catalog of them if, if I'm going into a comic book and Jerry's written it I'm more than likely going to enjoy it but in terms of the depth of enjoyment and again in terms of formative works Jim Starlin is always going to be in my heart uh, at a much higher level and so for me reading Atari Force reminded me a ton of Dreadstar and it, but it's sort of like a kidified version of it. it's just much lighter fare even though there's widespread death and some fairly dark premises that are they're mixed into that but it's still video game characters fighting a Darth Vader analog and uh, having you know these cookie adventures with a lot of anthropomorphic characters much lighter you know they're both Star Wars pastiches there's just no way around that but for me Dreadstar just has a little more weight to it because of the influence of like Harvey Kurtzman's war comics the EC material where Atari Force is just pure fantasy with a few dark elements in the mix so I totally get why people like Atari Force and I gotta tell you it's such a brisk read TMI but I've read a lot of the stories on the toilet one of the things that's nice about Atari Force is it's the, the storytelling is so clear and it's such light fun storytelling that you can stop you can read a page of Atari Force and be satisfied and move on or you can sit there and read an issue and a half two issues three issues in a row it's just really easy going it's real smooth it's not heavy material but it's fun the characters are really you know entertaining uh, you enjoy spending time with them uh, even the more bizarre 
bizarre alien characters have a humanity to them that's appealing. They have good personalities to them. And it's just a really easy book to read. Looking at an image from Who's Who and you see all these kooky characters and you don't think that they're, they're gonna, you're gonna be able to empathize with them, and root for them and want to follow their adventures. But you very easily do. They're all, they have that sort of Pixar quality where even the, the least, the more abstract characters and the more alien characters uh, have a human core to them that, that makes them an easy hook. You know, you, you root for them and you want to see them succeed in their adventures and, the, and, and it's just fun spending time with these guys. So I totally get why people like Atari Force, but also for me, it's sort of like Mick Dreadstar. It's just, it's a lighter, kiddier version of Dreadstar and I just typically rather read, read Dreadstar or I'm always going to assign it more weight and more value, but it's still a lot of fun and I totally get why people dig on Atari Force. So it's been a nice discovery. Sometimes you go back to something that people have hyped up and you're just like, eh, whatever. But I've, I've totally enjoyed Atari Force and I'm looking forward to seeing its conclusion. I'm a little wary because um, I'm at the point now where Jerry Conway has left the book. A whole new creative team is coming in. Mike Barron's going to be the writer. But it's, it's only, I think we've only got like five or six issues left anyway. So even if it were terrible, it couldn't, you know, I, I can still manage to make it through essentially a miniseries uh, remaining on the book. So I'm looking forward to seeing how it all resolves. And this year, I started the Marvel Handbook. I've always wanted to do it. was sort of, to some degree, the rolled spine answer to the Who's Who podcast. I, I love o- Official Handbook of the Marvel Universe, and I've been trying to figure out how to make something like Oh Hot New work for years because it doesn't lend itself as easily or as readily to podcasting as Who's Who does. We'd actually tried to record something similar to Who's Who with Oh Hot New. I thought it was a kind of a dumpster fire, <laughs> and we released that as an episode of Marvel Superheroes finally ahead of the Marvel handbook i put out an episodes covering the first issue I, I really obviously had hoped to do like one issue equals one podcast and the parameters of oh hot move just made that uh, untenable I, I just couldn't you know make that work without it being like a six hour podcast and uh, there are probably somebody who wants that but i didn't want to do with it and that's another show that's very labor intensive and it's been on a bit of a hiatus because it was a more stressful show to produce than i, I appreciated and i'm a dummy because i totally should have seen it coming because it was just a fucking bitch to get the fucking thing started. I, I, I you know, it took me years to finally get the damn thing going. And because, uh, you know, I'm not a social butterfly. I'm not a, a person who's great at organizing and coordinating with other people. That's why it works so good for me and my buddies to all get together at somebody's house and just start bullshitting. I'm the guy who forgets which time zone I'm in and uh, misses a, a recording session because I thought that they were an hour ahead instead of an hour behind or vice versa. It's not really how I'm put together. And that doesn't mean the podcast isn't going to keep coming out. I already have a ton of material for, you know, throughout the run of the Ohatmu entries. Those are going to have to come out. I'm pretty confident. Maybe confident's the wrong word. I'm, I'm intent on making sure that the show starts up again this month, but it might end up being October. We'll see how things go. It's already the 17th as I'm recording this. And it's not like I haven't ever blown a deadline before, but basically I'm used to the more rollicking nature of the other World Spine podcasts that I do with my buddies. And it's just a lot more work to do the handbook. And so I, I've, I, I kind of took a break from it there's also some personal issues there's basically uh, one person in particular that i want to be involved in that project that's just not available for various reasons and because of that i i just hesitated to work on it because it just makes me uh, conscious of a situation i don't really want to have to think about right now and so i keep putting it off so again i could work on dc bloodlines material but that's a, a bear of a show and i just haven't been in a rush to do that I, I need to work on marvel handbook but i've got various issues with that to prevent me from getting that done and then we get back to who's editing. Man, a 
comic night. So here's the thing. I had one of the dollar comics, 100 page dollar comics when I was a kid, and it featured a Murphy Anderson drawn reprint of a 50s or 60s, I think 60s, Atomic Night story. Riding around on dogs, running around in medieval armor that had been irradiated by nukes, all that kind of good stuff. So, of course, I know from whence the Atomic Knights came from, and so I enjoy that material. I remember reading, in particular, rereading the story in like 87, and the story I think was supposed to be set in like 1994 or something, and kind of going, woo, that future is coming up pretty fast at this point. And of course, it's since passed. But I've looked at DC's various attempts to make Atomic Knights something relevant to modern superhero continuity, and it's always just terrible because the, the, all the fun, everything of value in Atomic Knights is riding around the docks. That's the cool thing. That's all you really want from your Atomic Knights. But what's funny is, again, it's part of Cisco's project. You got to do something with Atomic Knights. So I had this idea of just, okay, they're like this group of government soldiers who have to are tasked with dealing with the uh, metahuman menaces that are unchecked because so many of the major superheroes are gone. It's a really simple, really basic idea. And as it turned out, as the project progressed, it was perfect for absorbing rando concepts from uh, issues of who's who, low stakes villains mostly, and just have them, okay, well, you've got the normal humans who are, you know, the, the elite team that's supposed to stop these minor league metahuman menaces. It's a really handy thing to have in a thought experiment like this. And so Atomic Knights have had more life than so many other properties that, you know, I love more and would want to invest more in. But as the project has progressed and as I've kind of had a sense of where it's going to go, Atomic Knights just make a lot of sense for what I'm doing. And so I just keep using these guys over and over again. It does make me think that it's too bad that when DC's tried to do stuff like that, like I think one of the more recent instances was the Black Hawk series, a book that I would have wanted to read. I, I never read a single issue of it, but you know, I grew up on G.I. Joe. And so again, it's the, the elite strike force. It seemed like a cool notion, but basically everybody I, I talked to about Black Hawks told me that it just wasn't one of the winners of the New 52. I've never read it. I don't know how well it worked out. I haven't had much use for researching it because I went a vastly different way. I'd always liked the idea because Black Hawk was a character that was so big in his day. He was one of the great big icons of comic book adaptations in the earliest days. He got movie serials and he was a bestseller. It just seems like DC could get mileage out of that themselves. I think they try to do that with stuff like Black Hawk and Men in War. I guess creatively they just weren't there or maybe the fans weren't there for it. But just in my own personal experience, it's a really versatile concept. You can do a lot of stuff with it. And it's too bad DC hasn't been able to do something like that in the publishing world. So the thing with who's editing is sort of a spinoff of who's who, where Siskoid takes an issue of who's who, and rather than going listing by listing to talk about the entries in the who's who, the idea is that his co-host and himself will put together a line of books where all the protagonists, historical protagonists, I should say, will have to have their own title, and then you can throw the villains in the midst of those titles, and you have to basically produce a line of books based on a single issue of the who's who book. And again, I'm sure every, anybody who's listening to this is familiar with who's who, but just in case, it's basically a comic book side encyclopedia where every one or two pages is an entry about a character or a property from DC Comics uh, listed in alphabetical order. And so it can be challenging when you've got an entire book of nothing but people named Captain something or other. Well, I didn't know that I needed who's editing, but I definitely did because it came out and I did the first one and it was just a blast. To, okay, I, what I should say is they put out an episode and then I left one of my normal manifesto psychotic comments where I also did the same thing they were doing, creating a line of books based on that 
one issue. But being extra as I am, I couldn't just leave it at that. So when the second edition came out, I felt the need to actually create continuity between the first comment and the second comment. And this thing has just gotten bigger and bigger in uh, my life where I spend more and more time researching for these... I'm I'm researching for a comment on somebody else's podcast. That's how insane I am. But the simple truth is the podcast gives me life. It's like I get so jazzed to work on the project. And the funny thing is I'm not even doing Siskoid's project anymore. What he is asking of people to do on each individual of the show, because of my little, like, I'm going to have continuity from comment to comment thing from edition to edition, I'm playing my own game where it's, can I tell something like a story over the course of this thing? And where's the arcs end? And how does this property relate to this property? How do I figure out a way to maintain this notion that was thrown? You know, like the first one I did, I'm just throwing an idea out there. It's just the elevator pitch done in a few minutes. And now I'm trying to figure out how to make that have life over the course of multiple comments. It, it's just ridiculous. I'm, I'm a, a madman, but it's been a great deal of fun because I've gone back and I've done a bunch of research and I felt compelled. Part of the conceit for me is that you're inheriting the DC universe that currently exists. So I'm, uh, even though I kind of in the first ones, I pretended like I was doing the DC comics that I'd fallen in love with in the nineties. It's not the nineties anymore. It's the year 2020 and stuff's going on and it's worth talking about those things. And DC's put out a bunch of books over the last nine years now of the new 52 and rebirth era that do different things with continuity that I'm not as familiar with because I didn't read those books. And I don't think it's fair to, I'm a big believer. Even if I hate something in comics, somebody put themselves out there. They, they put in work, they put in effort. It was their livelihood. It was their artistry to create a comic book. And so if you're going to do a comic book, you can't just do some bullshit like, you know, Brian Singer did with the Superman sequels where he just pretends that Superman three and four never happened. Yes, they did. People went to those movies. They saw those movies. People worked on those movies. I'm not saying there's some kind of passionate quest for peace fandom out there, but it's, it's a really, it, I, I almost can't think of anything shittier that you could do to a creative person than to literally just pretend like what they did never happened. And I think for me, part of the fun of a creative endeavor is the problem solving. If I've got to deal with uh, John Cryer being Lex Luthor's nephew and the nuclear man with his super powered fingernails and abandoning the strong love story from the first two movies in order to have Annette O'Toole turn up as Lana Lang in the third movie and basically do everything they can to avoid Lois Lane in the latter two movies. I think that part of the fun of a, of a creative endeavor involving a continuity is getting to the place you want to be while also recognizing the stuff that you didn't like and resolving that, you know, incorporating that into what you're doing, find out a reason why that happened, fix it to the best of your degree ability. If it needs to be fixed, if you can ignore it or you can gloss over it or you can explain it. But what often happens too when you're trying to do that is you come up with a new creative avenue because I mean, a lot of storytelling is in conflict. It's in figuring out how to overcome this obstacle. As a creative person, it, it seems like there'd be, within a shared universe, no greater obstacle than trying to figure out how to resolve these elements that you may personally despise. You have to embrace them and solve that for yourself and for other fans because those people spent their money, they went to go see those movies, and I think that you can do something with that. It's a fertile soil to grow things in. You know, shit is a good fertilizer. You know, you, you can't forget that.
I was really trying hard to get a Diana Prince podcast out over the weekend. That clearly didn't pan out, and instead I edited this today. Well, it's actually tomorrow by the time it's going to come out. And as my wacky editing finally starts to get to the point of the show, this is part of the point of the show. This is something I would plug in there real quick without missing a week, as I've done on the past. So uh, let me just go ahead and quickly get to the folks that are still supporting my nonsense. 108 Sage, Alan Middleton, Baby Skeletor, Dr. Ange, Art of Esteban, Kali, Biko Django, Chris Dunford, Chris Lydon, Chris Thompson, who folks of you get the previews catalog. He has an interview in this month's ep- issue, or is it still this month's issue? Yeah, it's still this month's issue. So uh, you might want to check that out. Doc Strange, Dirk Ashton, who added thanks to RSP, El Romero Romero, Fanholes Podcast, Green Lantern HG, hashtag more trekker more often, The Hammer Strikes, Random Geeky Stuff, History of Comics on Film, I was Joe Crawford, Jeffrey Brown, John from Married with Comics Podcast, Just in Time with JT Baggers, Keith G. Baker, King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun Podcast, Longbox Crusade, Mozinger1978, Mike at Send Aliens to Me, Mila Dream, Men, Mr. Majestrix, Odell Abner Dracula, Philip McClary, sorry, McCallery, Randy Caldwell, Randy the Comic Nerd, Ranger Gord, Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast, Richard G, Robert Speculum Fight, Ryan Daly but Scarier Because Halloween, Secret War and Beyond Podcast, Sean Phillips, Siskoid, Son of Cthulhu, Tomb Priest, The Pod Crashing, Wildstorm for Life, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. Chris Dunford wrote, A Splendid Time is Guaranteed for all. The Reverend Odell Abner Dracula wrote, I was irreconcilably divorced from DC by the time convergence happened, so that ARC news completely blindsided me. I'm still not going to read it, but it's interesting to hear about. Yeah, it's funny about that. I was totally pulling a Donald Trump, unfortunately. Again, this was recorded in September, and the last time I switched phones, I didn't resubscribe to the Waiting for Doom feed, and so I got months behind on DCOCD, and so I finally checked the feed again earlier this week, and I saw that they had an episode of convergence. So this whole time, I'm like, Convergence. Nobody talks about Convergence. Have you heard about this thing? It was kind of weird, kind of interesting. And uh, when I saw the Convergence episode of DCOCD, I was like, oh man, I bet you I'm, it's going to be a lot of repetition. And I'm going to look foolish acting like, you know, I'd rediscovered Convergence. Nobody else had talked about it recently. Thankfully, they had, uh, well, they had similar thoughts on the project. Uh, they didn't actually cover very much of the same stuff I did. Like they really seemed to avoid talking about the Telos reveal. And then I talked about it a lot. So they actually ended up complimenting each other, thankfully, with no planning going into that. So finally, we've got Jeffrey Brown, who writes, hey, I have a copy of this, meaning the DC Comics Encyclopedia by DK. Smiling face with smiling eyes. Um, that was probably an emoji, but it translated literally when I copied and pasted it. I have fun reading over the various who's who entries. I still look at, over it now. I had this one since I was a teenager when I was watching Just League Unlimited and Teen Titans obsessively. Since I was just getting into reading the post-crisis stuff. I currently don't have the New 52 edition. I remember being pretty unimpressed with the New 52 and how they treated various characters I like. For example, Wonder Woman, Doom Patrol, meaning pre- young animal line where I was hungry for new patrol and the show which I love and the new 52 takes on the Wildstorm characters. I love them too but they messed up Zealot and Grifter. I really didn't like new 52 Superman, Barry Allen, the lack of John Stewart Green Lantern, Hawkgirl and John Jones lineup from the cartoon, even the Teen Titans and new 52 was bad. And see that's the thing, the research I'm doing is tending not to focus very much on the more iconic DC heroes so I'm, I'm getting a lot more information on the obscurities. I know that John Stewart had a book eventually in the New 52, but I'm, I'm not sure how we got from one place to another. I, that's part of the journey we're all on, me especially. The preceding program is a non-profit fan production. Any copyrighted materials contained therein are believed borrowed under fair use with no copyright infringement intended. Please feel free to leave comments at Rollspine's Productions WordPress blog. You can also send us Twitter comments through the Rollspine Podcast Twitter. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.